0: You can take a seat. As you take a seat, uh, if you're going to Big Kid City, uh, kinder through fifth, you're welcome to head to the back. Um, as they're going, a little bit of a transition point, uh, my name is Ben, I'm one of the elders here and I'm honored to uh, walk through some of Ephesians with you. Um, I want to recognize that it's chilly in here this morning and, and usually what we do, have you felt that? It's probably just me. I'm the only one who's felt that it's cold. Um, Usually, we apologize for it being cold, as if we can do something about uh, it. Um, But instead of apologizing, I want to tell you today, uh, it's intentionally cold in here. Um, See, we're walking through Ephesians, and Ephesus was on the coast of the Mediterranean. Um, And in November, Ephesus was about 40 to 50 degrees or so. And so we're heading into November, and so we're just trying this whole, like, experiential, drawing you into the text in a very, very real, holistic kind of way. And so if you're cold, you're on a Mediterranean coast right now. That's where we're at. Okay? We good? Okay. Um, So we're in the book of Ephesians. Um, If you uh, have a Bible or an app, we're in Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, then you are welcome to grab one from the basket in the back. And if you don't have one at all, you're welcome to keep it. If you're using that Bible, we are on page nine. 7, 6. 976 Ephesians is near the back of the Bible if you're new to the scriptures. So, um, this week I was at a conference for, for church leaders, pastors, ministers, that kind of stuff. Um, if you've never been to a conference for church leaders, uh, it's kind of a cheesy place. I'm going to be honest. Uh, pastors are not known to be the coolest men and women in, in the world. Um, and so the whole thing's a little bit cheesy, but they, they try to find like the, the trendiest venue. Um, they, they try to come around and, and just offer great encouragement and exhortation to those who are trying trying to lead different churches. There's, there's lights and fog machines. There's all the new tips and tricks out in the lobby uh, for you to take back to your church. And um, very typically, like the newest and most cutting-edge worship songs are, are being played. So again, you can kind of take those back to your church. That's usually what happens at these pastor's conferences. Um, at this conference, though, the band gets on stage. They look very, you know, worshipy, skinny jeans and what have you. And uh, and then they break into this this old hymn, Blessed Assurance, and just kind of throw the whole paradigm out the window of new trendy song. They, they start to sing Blessed Assurance, which which you, if you haven't heard this song, I'm not going to sing it for you. That would be terrible for all of us. But, but the words are on the screen, and, and the first verse goes, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. And then the chorus goes, this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. And it repeats as if we need to be reminded in all the false stories we believe. This is the one true story. This is the one true song. Praising my Savior all the day long. And these lyrics are are just a perfect fit For Ephesians 1, for today's verses. And and if you've never done this with hymns, it's always interesting to dig into the the reasons that hymns are written. Um, This one is written by a woman named Fanny Crosby in the 1800s. And Fanny um, was blind. She wasn't born blind. She became blind as a baby. She was raised by her mom, but really mostly raised by her grandmother after her dad passed away. And as a child, Fanny uh, w- was depressed because she couldn't learn like the other kids. Her, her physical infirmity um, prohibited her from learning like the other kids, and so became very depressed. But her grandma, instead of doing what a lot of folks do, of like, no, you can do it. Let's, let's encourage you and give you confidence. I- I- instead, her grandma taught her how to pray and said, would-, would, God- would you trust God to be the sight that you don't have? And, and eventually, Fanny grew up taught at a school for for blind kids it, it ended up writing tons of poems and songs but blessed assurance is a, is just this great reminder cuz cuz look at the words who's who's the one at work in these lyrics it's not her it's all god And no matter what the circumstances that we are walking through, that she was walking through, I don't know anyone in here who's physically blind. We have had members of our church who are physically blind, physically deaf. But whether it's something like that or walking through death or or being depressed or even in the highest moments of life, our assurance is not about ourselves. Our assurance is all about God. And so if you're new with us this week, we're in this series through the fall called Foundations of Worship. And, and for the next five years, the city church is pursuing a revival of joyful worship with the great hope and prayer that, that that joyful worship will advance into God's kingdom in every generation of our city. And so this fall, we're walking through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and we're seeing the basis for that vision. We're seeing the basis of joyful worship. We have to see this Ephesians and every New Testament letter doesn't start with go and do. It doesn't start with go be joyful worshipers. It doesn't start with dear Ephesians, this is Paul, here's a checklist, here's five marks of a Christian life. Instead, how does Paul and how does every New Testament letter start? This is God. Look, look, this is who God is and this is who you are because of God. In other words, the foundation of our worship is not about our actions or our, our faith or even our ability to worship. The foundations of our worship has nothing to do with us and has everything to do with God. And whether you're here and you think you're a follower of Jesus and have been for a long time or whether you're here and you know you're not or you're wondering if you are, all of us have times and situations that that are something like what Fanny Crosby experienced before she wrote Blessed Assurance. All of us have hard times. All of us have doubt. All of us have dark moments. All of us yearn for more. And in those times, our response, if we're really honest, at least my response, is not often What Fanny Crosby's grandmother taught her, pray. Let God be your sight in those things when you are blind to what's going on. If you're like me, in those moments, we seek for something, anything that makes us feel secure, don't we? Like So so we'll we'll frantically grasp at something we can control when everything else seems out of control. We, We may even lash out in anger. We may just kind of go crazy and become overwhelmed. We may shut down. And we're only let down by those things because none of them lead to true security. True assurance is not found in our circumstances or in ourselves. Security is not found in anything we can grasp. What Fanny Crosby says and what Paul says in Ephesians 1 is that assurance and security is found only in God. So each week this fall, every verse of Ephesians one through3, Paul's saying, "Look, this is God. See what God can do. Look at Jesus and his work. Look at the spirit who dwells within you. And each week in each verse, Paul says, this is who you are because of what God is doing and what God has done. So by the end of Ephesians 3, we'll see that who we are because of God is called. That was week one. We're adopted and redeemed. That was last week. We're sealed. That's today. And then in November, we'll see that we are living, we're included, and we're empowered. Church, the foundation of worship is God and who God has made us to be. And the aspect of that that we see today, the the main theme we're driving for, it's going to be on the, the screen behind me, is that in Christ, we have a promise for eternity and today. And he say it again. In Christ, we have a promise for eternity and today, and Paul paints three pictures of that promise in our verses today. First, from God, we have an inheritance, God the Father. From in, in God the Son, we have a hope, and through God the Spirit, we are sealed for eternity and for today. So let's read, if we will, Ephesians 1. I'm going to start in verse 11. And here's what Paul writes, in him, this is Christ, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, again, still Christ, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Church, this is the word of the Lord. God, we thank you for your word. I pray that you, your word would be what goes out and enlivens our hearts. And would you help us trust this truth because it's a hard one for us to believe sometimes. Amen. All right, here's the first picture that God paints of the promise. Through God the Father, we have an inheritance. All right, that's essentially what verse 11 says, almost verbatim. You've obtained an inheritance in Christ. Now, now talk to me a little bit. What things do you inherit from an earthly family? Whether whether while your your parents next generation's alive or after your your parents, the previous generation has passed, what, what things do we inherit from our families? Money. Hopefully, yeah, sure. What else? Or debt. <laughs> what else? Tradition? Genetics. Stuff. That's right. Yeah. So, so after a, a family member passes away, might inherit money or, or a house or not money. Um, uh, while we're alive, we inherit DNA and a reputation and, and, and hereditary things and this kind of stuff. And, and, and Paul's first picture of God's promise is just continuing the theme that we've seen in the past couple weeks. If you haven't been here, here's who we've seen God to be in Ephesians 1 so far in just 10 verses. God is a father. Not just a father, he's a good father. Not just a good father, he's a father who lavishes us and blesses us with every spiritual blessing. And and Paul's listed some of those blessings. We're redeemed, we're forgiven, we we have his grace, he gives us purpose. Last week, Chris talked about how God has chosen us and adopted us. If you're in Christ, you need to hear that some of us have a really hard time with this. God has made you part of his family. Yes, us, but you. You are an heir of an eternal fortune. You are a princess or a prince of the greatest king in the greatest kingdom in all of history. You. I was talking with Luke and Emily Byford this week, and they both work for Gladney Center, which works in adoption uh, both locally and abroad. And, and Luke told me, this is mind-blowing to me, in Texas, Adopted children were not entitled to the inheritance from their adopted family until 1951. 51, 61. 1951. So, so play this out. So, so of course, parents could, could make a will and then you know, give their inheritance whomever they wanted. But if an adopted parent died without a will, if you had biological kids, you were entitled to the full inheritance. If you were an adopted child, you were not entitled to the inheritance from your parents. Until 68 years ago. Like, that's insane to me. By contrast, that is not the heart of God, church. If you are in Christ, what is your portion? What's your percentage? What inheritance do we have from a good father who lavishes his grace and blessing on us? 100%. We have everything. And the inheritance we have from our Father is is, is better than a few bucks or this temporary home. We have His spiritual DNA. We're given the name and reputation above all names and reputations. We're given eternity. Church, God gave you, gives you. God has promised to give us as an inheritance Himself He made the ultimate sacrifice in order to give us full access and full inheritance. And what's more, God planned to give it to you way more than 68 years ago. God's been planning this and has planned it from before the beginning of time. Chris talked about this word last week, but but that's what Paul means when he says we're predestined. It's predetermined. For all of time, God has been planning to give you all that He is and all that He has. That's what He has for His kids. For all of time, God has been planning to give all that He has and all that He is to you. And thus, for all of time, verse 11 says, God's been working literally every single thing on earth according to his will, as he moves each of his children into that inheritance. These are truths, church, we cannot fathom. They're too big for us. They're too glorious to wrap our minds around. But you know what we can fathom? I think many of us can fathom what we do with the inheritance that God gives us. I'm going to step on some toes here including my own, but I want you to think with me. What do we do with the spiritual riches and blessings and grace and purpose that God gives us? What do you do? There's different responses that if we thought about it would come to mind, but but I think a lot of them would fall into two categories. Um, every time I think of the word inheritance, my mind goes to the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Which if you don't know the story, Jesus tells a story of two sons. One goes to his father and demands his financial blessing, his inheritance from his father. And then goes and just utterly wastes it by living for himself. He, he utterly disregards the lavish blessings of his father. He eventually repents. That's the good news of the story. And, and, and the good father welcomes this first son home with joy. But, but the point is that like many who receive an inheritance, the first son just squanders it, wastes it, wastes his time, wastes his blessing, wastes his purpose, living in sin and disregarding the blessings. Is that you? There's a second son in the story, though, who's who's very dutiful, works very, very hard to earn his father's blessings. If you don't know the story, he's he's mad when the father welcomes the first son home. The the second son's mantra is, I deserve the inheritance. He does not. And we don't know how the second son's story ends, but like many who receive a blessing and inheritance, the son did not know how to receive grace. The second son self-righteously worked to try to earn his father's blessing, the second son self-righteously tried to earn and work for his inheritance. Is is that you? Don't don't we do one of these? Don't I mean? There's moments I feel like I do both of them. I squander it one day, and I try to earn my way back in the next. I look elsewhere for satisfaction. I rest on myself and try to earn. God's favor or the favor of people around me. And whether you follow Jesus or not, the picture that Jesus is painting is that God is represented by the Father in this story, and that whichever camp you fall into, or the moments you fall into either of those camps squandering or trying to earn, when and not if you run from God, and when, not if you're self-reliant. God just doesn't wait for you to return. He runs after you. He finds you where you're at, and he brings you home. That's what God is about. Why? Because he's a good father, a father who lavishes his blessings upon us, a father who has called and adopted and redeemed and sealed you. City Church, the point of this first verse is that from the beginning of time, God has a plan for you and a great inheritance for you. Don't waste your inheritance. Because there's actually nothing you have to do to obtain it or acquire it, but trust Jesus because he attained it and acquired it on your behalf. That's the first picture of this promise. In Christ, we have a promise for eternity and for today. That's the first picture. Through God the Father, we have a great inheritance. And the next verse gives us a second picture. In God the Son, we have hope. Let me read verse 11 again, because it's a, a break in the middle of the sentence. In Him, in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance. We just talked about having been predestined by the Father according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Verse 12, so that, we who were first to hope, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glorious grace. All right. When you think of the word hope today, what's it connote in your mind? What comes to mind? Here's what connotes a weird word. I'm sorry. Uh, what comes to mind when you think of hope? Here's what comes to mind when I think of hope. There's a solid chance it's not going to happen. Right? When I think of hope, it means like we're, there's like a 50-50, maybe 60-40 that it's going to happen. I think of, I was at a pool this summer with one of my kids trying to, to teach, as Travis, trying to teach him how to, how to do the high dive thing. Kids terrified. It's a lot higher up there when you're five years old, four years old. And so I'm, I'm in the water, treading water and going, buddy, just jump. I will catch you. You can trust me. Right? There's a long line of kids waiting. He's kind of crying on the, on the edge of the diving board. I'm like, just jump. You can trust me. You can trust me. That's what's coming out of my mouth. What's going through my mind is I don't know if I can catch him, right? <laughs> I hope I can catch him, right? I'm, I'm treading water. You're not jumping off a high dive into a shallow end, so I'm not standing there. Travis kind of a big dude. Like, he, we both might be going under, okay? Um, if I look away, and that's when he jumps. If he jumps at the wrong angle, right, this <laughs> is I hope I can catch the kid. That's what we think when we think of hope in our world today. Hope is iffy. That's not how God means hope. That's not the hope we have in God. Paul makes a distinction in this verse that helps us show the depth of his promise. He says, we, in verse 11, and he's talking about Jewish Christians. The first Christians were, were were out of Judaism, were out of the nation of Israel. Now, in verse 13, Paul includes all Christians. He says, you also. It means Gentiles in Ephesus, those who weren't Jews. It means us today. But the distinction is important, and rather than dividing Jews from Gentiles, Paul actually elevates the status and blessing and hope and promise that all Christians have. See, Paul's explaining that God has always had a people and a portion. God has always had a people and a portion. God has always blessed his people and his portion. God's always charged his people and portion to represent God to the world around them. And so if you're in Christ, your hope is not iffy. Your hope is certain. Everything that God has said to be true in Ephesians so far is proven and sure Because it has always been true of God's people for all of history. We get to look back and see the certainty. We get to look back and see the fulfillment of his promise in his Old Testament people that he promises to his New Testament people. In Ephesians 1, God is taking the blessings and promises that he gave his Old Testament people in portion, Israel, and applying them to his New Testament people in portion, the church which includes Jews and Gentiles. So back to verse 12, the Old Testament Jews, Israel, were the first to hope in Christ. That's what Paul says. From Genesis 3 on, when sin entered the world, God has promised his people a a, a Messiah. And in their sin and suffering and in the brokenness of their world and in their worship... Old Testament Israel had a true and certain hope. Here was the hope. One day, someone would come to restore all things. That was their hope. One day, someone will come to make this right. One day, we'll attain an inheritance. Church, that's the same promise that God gives to Christians, his New Testament people in portion. And, and unlike Israel in the Old Testament, we have the added blessing of getting to look back and see that God has and did fulfill that promise that he made to his Old Testament people in Jesus' first coming. The heart of Christianity, the foundation of our worship, is not our faith or our work. It's not our belief or our ability the heart of Christianity and the foundation of our worship is that Jesus lived as a perfect example, died as a full and final sacrifice, rose to conquer death for all of us, promised us eternal life, and obtained an inheritance for you that you could never attain. I say that again. The heart of Christianity, the foundation of our worship, is that Jesus lived a perfect life, an exemplary life. He died as a full and final sacrifice. He rose to conquer death. He promised you eternal life. And he obtained an inheritance for you that you and I could never obtain. That's why we live to the praise of his glory. That's what that verse means. It's an active thing. It says "Be we exist for the praise of his glory. We live. It's an active living, pursuing a pursuit of his glory. Why? Because every promise is in him alone. City Church, it's because God fulfilled Israel's hope in Jesus' first coming that Christians likewise have a greater hope that God will fulfill another promise in Jesus' second coming. One day in Christ, God will fully fix and redeem and restore and make suffering and brokenness disappear and justly judge and will give us the fullness of inheritance and the fullness of glory right alongside our big brother, Jesus. That's the hope we have in Jesus. That's the promise we have in Jesus. On one hand, God predestined us to inheritance and blessing. That's a past tense thing. On the other hand, we have a hope in the second coming of Jesus. That's a future thing. But where does that leave us now? The gospel is not just a past tense reality that greatly benefits our future. Inheritance and hope matters today. The promise is for eternity. Yes, the promise is also for today. Paul's third picture. And if you've been following, also the third person of the Trinity shows what our inheritance and hope means today. Look with me at verse 13. In Christ, again, you notice this theme, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's all in Christ. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it in eternity to the praise of his glory. Here's the third picture. If you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, then through God the Spirit, you are sealed. You're sealed in Christ. You're sealed through and by the Spirit. Now, what do you think of when you think of the word sealed? Redefining words at each point today. Here's the common image that you may, that may come to mind. It's the common image that's taught in the church, I think, not our church, the church, um, is that we're like a letter, and that at our salvation, we're put in some, like, mystical envelope, and that God the Spirit is this old timey wax seal that holds us in and keeps us secure until the day Jesus comes back. Is that what comes to mind? Is that what you've heard before? If that's true, what does it mean for life today? It'd be like, don't open till Christmas kind of thing. How can we live for the praise of his glory if we're tucked away for the second coming? There's a Puritan author named Charles Hodge who who helps us give a better meaning, a a more real meaning to the word sealed. This will be on the screen behind me. There's three reasons, three definitions of the word sealed. One, a seal authenticates something is true. So pause there. Think of like a middle aged kingdom, which most of us do all the time anyway. Um think of middle aged kingdom, like a king would give a messenger a signet ring to prove that the message really was from the king. Right? So so a seal authenticates some sort of message as true. A seal authenticates that something is true. Second, a seal marks you as your own, marks you as one's own. So so again, the ring, the signet had some sort of symbol that said, Oh, this is truly from the king. There was possession there. There was authenticity. There was possession. And then third, a seal would keep someone secure. And so as long as the messenger kept that ring, he would get safe passage through the kingdom. I'm a messenger of the king. Prove it. Here's a seal. Unless there was a coup, in which case not safe anymore. But for the most part, a seal kept him safe. A seal kept him secure. That's the image of a seal in Ephesians 1. On one hand, yeah. Yeah. God the Father keeps us for an eternal future with him. Yes. You have a a full inheritance waiting at Jesus' return. We have a blessed assurance of that. But, But in the Spirit, God authenticates our faith, marks us as his, and guides us through our life. The Spirit is a seal that authenticates our faith as true, that marks us as belonging to God, and that keeps us secure. The work of the Spirit now is a foretaste of an eternal inheritance. And what is that sealed life, what does that look like? Paul's going to answer that in Ephesians 2 through 6. You have to remember, like if we were really on the Mediterranean coast in Ephesus in the church, being cold from the sea breeze, um, the church would have received the letter and read it all together. And, and we're breaking it into little chunks. And so Paul is going to unfold for us what that sealed life looks like through the rest of November, and then we pick up Ephesians after Christmas. But for today, we'll leave it at this. While the active work of the Spirit and some of His gifts can, can be pretty devalued in Texas Christianity, if we can be fully honest. While the active work of the Spirit and His gifts can be devalued, don't, don't miss this. Verse 14 says that you're sealed if you what? If you hear and also believe. Both are vital. And, and how do you know if you hear and believe? How, how, how do we see if we hear and believe? It goes back to what Paul says, we're living for the praise of his glory. That's how we know if we really believe, is if it actually does something in our lives. The moment that Jesus became real to me was in college when I thought, walking across campus, if this Jesus thing is real, it should matter. All of life should be changed. That's how we know if we hear and believe. God's living and active presence In this life, through the power of the Spirit, is a down payment of enjoying God's full presence in the next life. Again, stepping on toes, if there's never any growth or fruit or sanctification is the theological word for it, then Jesus' brother James would say, you can't prove your faith without some sort of works. You can't prove your belief without some sort of response, some sort of overflow, some sort of change. Paul's saying something similar in Ephesians, which is good news, because it means when you see any, any slightest glimpse of spiritual fruit or growth or change or formation, you have the slightest yearning in your heart for the things of God. You have the slightest desire that you go, that's not for me then what Paul is saying is that's a sign from God that you're sealed. That's a a blessed assurance that Jesus is becoming more and more real to you, more and more your king. But hear this because it could sound really guilt-provoking or it could cause you to doubt. Because all things are from God and through God and to God, and because he is the active power in us, and because it's God who works through his spirit and in all things to form his kids into his image, that fruit doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be this massive change all at once. That's that's not how the Christian life works. Any growth, independence even, any growth... In peace, patience, kindness, any growth in faith, any growth in obedience, any realization, tiny realization, a little bit more of how deeply we need the Spirit, is a seal. Any one degree of glory to the next is the Spirit at work, guaranteeing that you are a beloved son or daughter, an heir and that there's a full inheritance coming. And it's all God's work. And so we get to live freely, worshiping to the praise of his glory. Make sense? So back to our first question. What's the foundation of our worship? It's that from God the Father we have an inheritance. It's that in God the Son we have a hope, and it's that through God the Spirit we're sealed. What's the foundation of our worship? It's that that God created us and saved us and fills us with his spirit. Church, we worship because God called us and adopted us and redeemed us and sealed us and gave us a whole new identity. We worship because in Christ we have a promise both for eternity and today. Is that good news? And here's the last point. Will said a couple weeks ago when we started this series that verse 3 through 14, it's, it's one long sentence. We've broken it up over three weeks. It's one long sentence in the original Greek. And, and so it's like Paul starts his letter to Ephesians by just exploding with exuberant praise, saying, look, look, church, look at God, see his goodness, know his glory. And so what do we do? How do we respond to this exuberant three week long kind of series that we've, we've, we've seen Paul explode in us? Here's the answer. Because all of chapter one points to reliance and dependence on God, it won't surprise you that after sharing that long sentence, Paul worships God through the rest of the chapter by praying. Starting in verse 15 through the end of Ephesians 1, it's this prayer of thanksgiving and praise to God for the truths that we've preached on for the last three weeks. It's thanksgiving and praise to God for who He is and what He's done. And so guess what we're going to do for the rest of our day, church? Instead of just teaching on Paul's prayer during this series and talking about Paul's prayer and dissecting Paul's prayer, we're going to join Paul in worshiping God by praying the prayer that Paul prays through the rest of this chapter. So Duke Rivard is going to come up. He's uh, leading a serve team on kingdom prayer that meets uh, on Sunday mornings to pray before our gathering. Plug. You should join it. Um, I've asked Duke to lead us through Paul's prayer as a response to today and as to a response to the last few weeks. And here's the deal. We're going to pray for a while, and we're going to pray together, and we're going to pray in this space through the themes of the rest of Ephesians 1. Okay? A few disclaimers, because some of you are getting anxious right now. Um, for some of you, corporate prayer is hard. That's Okay? For some of you, extended prayer is new. For some of you, prayer is new. This is a safe place to try. And so just like Andrew and Whitley have been leading us through worship through song, Duke's going to lead us in worship through prayer. And there's no one right way to pray. And so I want to give you a lot of freedom for the next 15, 20 minutes or so. You're welcome to pray alone, either in your head or out loud. Um, you're welcome to pray in your seat, on your knees, spread out if you want to. Uh, you're welcome to circle up these chairs come apart. Um, and they got glitter underneath them. So you'll see that. So um, you're welcome to circle up and, and pray and together in, in groups of three or four. In fact, you're welcome even, we put some paper and some markers on the back table. So if focusing and writing and drawing helps you kind of focus in on prayer. You're welcome to get up and go grab paper and markers and, uh, and, and pray through that way because there's no one right way to pray. And finally, last disclaimer, if you're uncomfortable with this, or if you have questions, I'll kind of be back out of the room in the back corner over here, and I'm happy to talk with you or pray with you. And so that's the rest of our morning. It's different for us than than what a normal response looks like, but prayer is a vital form of worship, and corporate prayer is a vital form of worship that we frankly haven't done enough. So we're going to wrap up with with one song and communion here in a little bit, but because Paul's text leads us into prayer... Prayer is going to be the majority of our response today.